0: Seigo, Sewa Gwego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of True Seed Media. My name is Lisa Venevery from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name program, and the host of the podcast. This is the Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast series. Lohsana Dalton Labarge is from Aquasasni, and a member of the Mohawk Nation and Bear Clan. Lohsana is a fourth-year medical student at the University of Rochester, and I'm so excited about this, a wampum belt apprentice. That means we're going to be talking about wampum belts, which is like my favorite subject. And his interests include advocating for improved health care and mental wellness for our nations. He's a storyteller, oh, that's great, and studies Ganyageha and learning from the land. Losanaze graduates this spring and begins his career as an emergency medicine resident doctor. Welcome to the podcast, Lohsanazze. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm so excited to talk with you. Um, In our podcast, I'm always on the search for interesting um, Haudenosaunee people out there doing interesting things, and I found you, (laughs) and I'm I'm so excited because you're doing really interesting things. You're just a young person, you're on your career path, and I'd like to know, how did you decide that you wanted to be a doctor?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, my my Mohawk name is Lozanoze, huh? And it means he's got a new name. And I really, I think that I've grown into that name because... I don't do things the standard path or the set way. A lot of people who get into medicine, they do pre-med and undergrad, and they study really hard and they do all of the things, and then they go right into medical school. It's a long training process. And the truth is I'm 32 years old now. When I was 21 coming out of undergrad, there was no way I could have taken on this responsibility to care for people in this way. And it took some time, like I I got out of undergrad and I, I spent years working in the nonprofit field and trying to figure out what my path in life was going to be. And really what name would I have, right, for myself? And through those years, it was, you know, I struggled with my own health and mental health. And I spent a lot of time with being closer with people who are important in my life my family my community and we had a really sudden passing of one of our one of our women my cousin danielle Terrance she was like at the peak of her career and her passing came suddenly and it was really devastating for our family and you know that was like a really pivotal moment where I realized that what I was doing was I wasn't living up to my path, that we have a lot of health issues, we have a lot of things that weigh on our bodies and our minds, and unfortunately they are, they're so complex now, because they've gone through generations, and There's all these problems that we didn't have traditionally. We didn't have back in the day. And I struggled with the idea of becoming like a Western medicine person, a doctor. My uh, Aksutta, uh, Pat Boots, she was a traditional healer and offered counsel and medicine and ceremony for people who came to her in need. And that was always a part of my upbringing. But Western medicine is so different in many ways, right? It's a different thought process. different things you offer. And so I struggled with, am I going too far away from what I'm really interested in, which is being an person, right? But it's that idea that we're going to need both sides because the issues we're facing are really deep and complicated. And so we need a little bit of input from different knowledge bases to tackle those.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, during your studies so far, studying Western medicine, have you come across any courses that incorporate our traditional medicine?
1: No, not explicitly. It's something that like our medical education system is definitely interested, right? Because I've brought it up. Hey, we have ways of doing things or ways of approaching this from our mindset that I think would really benefit patients and learners, too, right? Like how we deal with grief, that is, we have some of the most, like, powerful tools in our traditions to deal with grief. And if you look at anyone living today and anyone who is studying medicine or who's taking care of people or people who are being taken care of, we're all carrying such a heavy burden of grief and it's like we have answers for that
0: yeah and moving forward you're i can see you're going to be carrying that that traditional knowledge with you and the patients that you see are going to be benefiting from that they're going to they're yeah, lucky i
1: feel really lucky to <laughs> yeah. um now in a, you know, when you introduced me, you said, you know, that it's July is when I'll be a do- like a practicing doctor. Like people will, I'll walk into a room and people will say doctor, and that's both scary and exciting, <laughs> but I feel really privileged to be in that position. It's been difficult, but I feel like I've been bundled up by so many different people and so many different experiences now that I feel ready.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's great. That sounds like so great. What's been the most difficult part of your journey in your learning process? Has it been isolating? Has it been lonely at times?
1: Yeah. It's interesting because no matter where I was going to go to medical school, I knew that I would be probably the only Onguohongwe person in the school, if not in the whole institution. And I was, uh, I was afraid that I would feel really s- isolated. And surprisingly, I don't feel that way. I'm here in Gatskun Seragun, Rochester, New York, and there is a pretty good population of mostly Mohawks, but also a lot of Seneca people here, and then the region. This is, we're still in our traditional territories, our traditional lot dinot suni territory. And more than isolated, I felt like challenged in a good way to, I knew I wasn't going to get that sort of connection in the medical training, but I knew I needed it. So it really encouraged me to think intentionally about how I was going to get that out in the world.
0: Yeah, that's great. And how did you become interested in (laughs) Wompum. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it's it was it's one of those things that it's I feel like it's almost become like a personal mythology at this point because it growing up, and I feel like a lot of Ungwehoma who grow up going to public schools, and certainly anyone any non-Ungwehoma going through like the standard me- like education system we, it was like experiencing our culture through a glass window. Like you go to a museum and you're standing there in belts and our material culture. And then you sit in a elementary school, like history class and they talk about us and they talk about how wampum is money. And they talk about us being like a thing of the past and you can't help, but in some ways internalize it. Like even even those of us who are fortunate to come from families with varying degrees of knowledge and connection and skills and things that they're passing on, it's really hard to not see ourselves through this like historical museum lens. And so growing up, my impression of Wampum was it's a, it's almost like this too sacred to touch thing. It's very official. It doesn't, it's not mine, right? I don't have any sort of participation in this. And I think what that changed when I was, it was actually before I started medical school. I tell this story openly in different spaces, but I was really depressed. This was about, I'd say 2015, 16. I was so depressed that I, like shut down, right? I like couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't like move, I couldn't think. I felt so lost. And a friend of mine at the time, she rescued me from the couch and was like, come on, get in the car, we're going somewhere. So she drove us over to Ithaca. And there was a used book sale going on there. And I was not in the mood to be in like a crowd of people and this busy, like it was a chaotic place, right? There's like tons of books and they're all cheap. So it was like really overrun. And I spent some time in this little room that was supposed to be like the rare book section. And uh, I found this book called New Voices from the Longhouse. And it's like an anthology book, all written by our people and I opened it up and it opens directly to a picture of actually my great uncle, Francis Boots. And it's, a, it's his sort of words about what wampum is and what it means to our people. And it's all about, he talks about this sort of transition of a message from person to person, or person to community, or nation to nation, right? And that it is a a tool that was given to us before Gayanere Goa, right? That it was a part of Ayawatha or Hiawatha's journey that he received Ohne Gorha Wampum, and it it happens at a time when he's like depressed, right? It happens at a time when he is like all of the worst things in life had fallen, had befallen him. And one of my favorite versions of the story that I had never heard before I opened this book is the version where Ayawata is walking by a lake and he's like really looking for answers because everything, he'd lost everything and that there are these big flock of geese that come and take away the water from the lake and it's there in the shimmer in the silt that he sees these like shimmering purple and white beads these shells and he collects them and then he starts to recite the condolence words the 15 condolence strands and i I felt so, I'm getting goosebumps now thinking about that moment because I felt so recognized, I don't know, chance or fate or something where it completely flipped my understanding of my relationship to this thing, right? It made it uh, accessible and it validated my struggles with depression. Because it said that even in our founding of our great confederacy, like even in the words that tell us how to be good in this world, it began with loss and grief and depression and uncertainty and there was some intervention that produced words and material that could heal our minds and make us ready to sort of accept responsibility and do the work that we have to do. And that's exactly what I needed at that point in my life because I was so like dug into the dirt.
0: I got goosebumps. By you telling that story. I do love that story about Ayawata and how he, he comes out of that. He accepts the help that is presented to him and he just comes out of that and how we have all benefited from that as nations.
1: Yeah, I, I love that idea of accepting help right? Because one of the things that they say in the condolences when you, when we clear the stricture from your throat, it's so that you can like use your voice to ask for help, right? To use your voice to ask for things from the natural world and from your people and your loved ones to, to build your strength back up. And so I spent, I spent the years after, after finding this document and having this moment of inspiration more on the side of, understand, like looking for understanding. So that was a time of a lot of asking those questions, like asking Adoro to like, explain those words to me, explain those ideas. And really it was many years of listening and reading and thinking and, and it wasn't until um, it was last year sometime I was on a very difficult rotation in OBGYN. I had a very sort of difficult shift with things that happened that were sad and hard for me to process. And uh, I had been gifted the some strands that were edge of the woods and the first three strands of the condolence. And I had them in my backpack. And I went out to uh, Lake Ontario, which is just 20 minutes north of the hospital here And it was like the sun was coming up and it was, but it was like rainy and gray. And and I was standing at the water and I had these strands in my hand and and then I heard them behind me. Like I just heard, and it was this massive flock of geese that swept down over the water in front of me. And of course, I'm a, a young person, so I had my phone. So I was like, I like whipped it out and I was like taking pictures of like my holding these strands out in front of the water and the geese swooping down and then out of the frame. And it was like, that was a moment of, of another moment of recognition that now it was time to take on the next step, which was to really start working with the material.
0: So what did that look like yeah.
1: for you? I'm very fortunate that here in this area, I met an individual. His name is Hazewedoni. He has adopted Seneca. His name is Rich Hamill. I had first met him through Ganondagan, through the Seneca Arts and Culture Center in Victor, New York. And he would come to events, and he is a like a master belt maker, and he would, he would present out all like he has just probably hundreds of belts that he's reproduced for historical reproductions. And, uh, you know, I would like watch him and then I started to talk to him more and sit with him. And so then anytime I'd go to one of these things that he was at, I'd sit with him and I would talk about my understanding of certain belts and stories that I've heard and teachings that I've heard and how they applied. And there was a day where he had some shells some shell beads all the way from the 1600s and he put them in my hands and i was i was holding these original Ohnegorha from hundreds of years ago and they're still so like firm and strong and precious and they've weathered every storm that we have right and they made it all the way through these years and that was the day that i said can you sit down with me and teach me how to work on the loom and produce these belts? It was another like right place at the right time because he's he was looking for someone to to teach the practice.
0: So you began to make the belt. Now, did you begin to make? What was the first belt that you that you made? Yeah,
1: it's one. Of, it's my favorite belt. It's the one dish, one spoon.
0: Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's so many teachings within that belt that even though it was a belt of hunting grounds Mm -hmm. and geographical area, the concepts of caring for one another that is in that belt and sharing and um, conservation, yeah, yeah. all yeah. of that. You could talk I for days on like, that. I think belt. of it
1: as, almost like the, oh, it's like the Ohando Gari Wadekwa of belts. It's like the belt that contains all of the understanding of the natural world and our responsibility to it, right? So I could, I, when I see One Dish, One Spoon, I know that it's talked about in, even in Guyana in like the, in the 50s, Six or so wampum strand, they, they talk about the hunting grounds and settling the matter of access to land and resources. And that is purported to be the one dish, one spoon. But for me, it has all of that depth, right? Because it's, it is, the dish is everything. It's all of creation. It's how we relate to it. But it's also very personal, right? Because it's, as an individual, we only have one body and one heart and one mind, right? And it's difficult to take care of those things sometimes. So I also see in it a responsibility for us to care for each other's bodies and minds and spirits in a way that we make sure that the difficult things in life that are really too heavy to shoulder by yourself, that no one is shouldering something that's like that on their own right
0: and connected to yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah let me see what i i am just so fascinated with the belts and i remember twice now where that in our community they've brought out the original belts yeah and i remember the first time that i went to a community event and and we were able to touch the belts, right, and feel mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. and just the strong energy. Even though they're so old, the strong energy they still have. Yeah, yeah.
1: And because the truth is that they are they are living in this way that we are living. They are meant to be held and touched and used. Like the thing that we do with them um, is that we um, like we say like we put the words into them, right? And then take the words out of them. And no matter who you are, whether you're a speaker or a learner or you haven't gotten there or no matter how connected you feel to our traditions or our communities, if you're Ngwehoa and Lotino Sunni and you hold these things, you can't help but to appreciate the, like, this importance and power and uh, durability of them. Like, and I think that a lot of things that we struggle with these days is shame about where we are on that spectrum of belonging. We feel lonely, we feel disconnected. We also feel curious and motivated and sleepy and excited. And we feel all of these things. And sometimes it's hard to know like where to put all of that energy. And you, I say you hold one of these belts and you're like, oh, man, that's, that's where it is. It's, yeah.
0: And even our personal wampum strings to put our words into our personal strings every day.
1: Yeah. So is it like carrying a personal message? Yeah.
0: So I've always, since I've been interested in wampum belts, I've wanted to know, and I ask people, why don't we create new wampum belts or are new wampum belts being created? What do you know about?
1: So my understanding is in the 23rd strand of the Gayanere Goa, I've heard it basically stated that it is the responsibility of our leadership that they are able to, to create wampum belts to create Gayuni or Gaswenta as agreements between that 23rd strand, also says any individual of our confederacy, any Rot Sunni person, can use wampum to communicate some agreement, to preserve some story or something for communication by our orators right because it is really it's for the use of orators to to share their gift of words right to use their gift of memory and insight to actively interpret and reinterpret these things for the future and i believe that's a gift that belongs to the people an orator's gift is our gift as a people they were just fortunate to have that ability right and and so I, I produce sort of my own contemporary belts. And I, at first, I've gotten different ideas about the appropriateness, quote unquote, right? Like how appropriate it is for an individual to, to create new belts. And I really come back to this idea that it is our power and right as a people, as individuals, right? It, it's different than seeing O'Negorha. Or Oronguatsa, the strands of wampum, or Gayuni Wampum. I think that it's different to look at those as a strictly formal belonging only to the leadership. and only those group of people can say what it is and what it isn't and who can craft it and carry it. Our even the even the gajis, the gajista, the white wampum, that is used in council, right? The fire of the people. My I've, my interpretation is that fire belongs to the people. It is just passed to our leadership to cultivate and protect and, nur- and nourish. And I think of that in the same way with this practice of, of creating real culture and wampum. I think that it should be done very earnestly and taken very seriously. But for me, it's been, I think, transformative in my understanding of myself, who I am in this world, how I relate to this bigger idea of a community or a nation or a confederacy, to put into a belt or a strand the stories and words and experiences that we see happening today, right? And that we see issues around certain things that Need to be readdressed through something that has power like a wampum belt.
0: And that is so beautiful. And I agree with you. We are a culture that is continually evolving, and we need to create. I always think of wampum belts as um, visual messages. Yeah. And I'm a visual learner, I'm a visual person. And visual stories, and and I think maybe that's why I was drawn to learn so much about them. And I know you sent me a photograph
1: yeah.
0: of, of you holding a wampum belt, yeah. and it has it has seven seven kind of diamond shapes on it. Did you create this one?
1: Yeah, so that's a new design. That's a contemporary design, and it's the the Jajanihadi Dihadi Dihadi Nundakwa, the seven dancers.
0: Well that story, yeah, Yeah, that's a great story.
1: It's one of my favorite stories from my Aksutta. She loved that story so much. And for her, it was there's that kind of message, it's watch your kids. Her, I think she she took it a step further. It was more than just mind your children. For her, it was she saw in it a responsibility to to truly like respect and cultivate young minds. And in her work as a counselor and a healer, That also meant bringing that same attitude towards adults who have like unresolved inner child work that needs to be done. And it's also, there's so many sort of beautiful elements to that, the Pleiades being a marker of our midwinter time. And it's a beautiful constellation that you can easily see right now in the sky. And the idea was to capture all of that in a belt. And so it's a, it's the widest belt I've produced thus far. It's 18, mine is 18 rows. It was a lot of beads. And, uh, but it feels, it feels like a moment in my own practice as a, as an apprentice loomer that if I started with the, I guess you'd call it like the greatest hits of our classic wampum. And <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard Sago um, uh Tom Porter, has a version of the creation story where he enumerates it right it's oh i Asuka have heard digini. him do that yeah, yeah. and yeah. yeah and what they correspond to in creation and in the creation story and so i thought of that as what were my first belts going to be so aska is one dish one spoon right Digany is Digany, the Digany joe wanjate the two row and then asa is the clan unity belt and then Gairi uh, is the Gunstatsro Wanahawe, on the women's nomination belt. Whisk is going to be the Ayawata belt. but mm. that's a big doing. I actually don't have a loom that's big enough for me to do it. I have to make a new loom for that. So I got the first four heavy hitters, I'd say. <laughs> And oh, yeah. so then after I completed those and I also have done like the condolence strands and the circle wampum. And so I, when I completed that part, I was like, okay, so I've laid a foundation for myself and I felt more encouraged to then start to explore this as a personal like craft and produce contemporary and personal and new belts. And I've done a few. The seven dancers belt is is, I'd say, one that I'm most proud of, because it's just, uh, so it's larger, and it's and it speaks to both my personal experience of the story and then our collective experience of it. But yeah, I have others. I have, I did one for, I, that I'm calling the Gatskun Saragunkayuni, the Rochester Bell, and that has like a, a representation of this place that I've been for many years now, which is a wonderful and strange place because there's three waterfalls in downtown Rochester. Yeah. And like it's named for the falls. And even though it was our Seneca's who were primarily settling, you know why, right? You're like, oh, this is there's some powerful things happening here. And so I sat down and created a, a smaller belt that that sort of honors that that specialness of place. And potential power, and maybe even invitation to get some land back here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's always good to be sending out those invites yeah, it's, um, all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait till you finish your whisk the <laughs> Five Nations belt. It, the original was over five thousand beads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a,
1: it's a big belt
0: yeah that's a huge one. So with your even with your belts that you have replicated and the ones that you have created, do you feel you' uh, you obviously feel the connection with them, but do you feel the power? do they have the they have power?
1: Yeah, and I will what I use for my looming, it's very difficult to get true quahog shell. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure and if anyone listening to this is willing to take on the project of reproducing true beads i would be your best advocate and friend i will make use of those but right now i use so for the warps the backing i use a leather lace right buckskin or doe skin lace and i use artificial sinew for the weaving and the beads are Primarily clay polymer beads. So I have a few people who produce these beads. They have it's their process, and they they what I like about them is how they look and feel and handle. They are very much like the original shell, and they get you can get more of a like a. I think they call it like a variegated texture. So it's not just like true purple. It's got a little bit of that variation in it. It's like some speckling of white and shades of purple. And and they're also not de- they're like delicate, right? One of the reasons I use glass bead, but I find that they're smaller. They don't they don't look quite like the shell beads as much. I think they're still beautiful and powerful and the sort of material of the bead doesn't, doesn't affect for me the power of holding a belt or holding the strands, but it's the lesson that comes in the delicacy of the clay beads that makes them my favorite thing to work with. Because when you're looming, it's all about tension, right? So the tension of your leather warps as they stretch across the loom, The tension in your line as you're pulling a a column down and threading it. If it's too loose, the belt doesn't come together. But if it's too tight, the belt will buckle and the beads will crack. Glass beads are very forgiving, right? So they don't, they'll buckle a little bit, but they won't break in half. Mm -hmm. So you can really weave a lot of tension into those glass belts. But the clay production, reproduction beads, too much tension and those things are going to snap in half and so it's like a teaches you or teaches me to come back always with every strand and every every time you're putting a row down and to like pay attention to the process to pay attention to the tension what's on your mind how you're feeling because if you're just going it takes the beauty out of the like presence of the process and your words and your mind that you're putting into it
0: so when you're when you're um, creating a belt is it is it really therapeutic for you?
1: Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm like I'm almost like I can't stop. i am like I've been a, I've been learning from Hazewedoni since the fall, so only since like September of 2022 is when I really started seriously with belts. Like I had done strands and reproduction strands before that, but sitting down with the loom is really a relatively new thing. And when I don't always, I don't have a ton of time off as a medical student, but like, I just had a week off recently and I just sat and loomed like the whole time. Cause it was just, it felt like the therapy that I needed for my heart and for my mind. And, and it's like, There's nothing quite like finishing a belt um, and taking it off of the loom and holding it and just feeling everything come together. Yeah.
0: I wanted to ask you, what type of doctor are you going to be?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oof! So I, I chose emergency medicine, or maybe emergency medicine chose me.
0: <laughs> things uh, yeah. things seem to find you.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I was very close to being an OBGYN because there's truly nothing that I love more in life than being at the birth. I think it's a, one of those moments of there's so much like power and energy and, and risk. And there, it could be either the best moment of someone's life or the worst. And it really is a... Um, I was doing very well in that space, but OBGYN training is also a surgical training. So you have to do a lot of surgery and a lot of procedure time. And I, I don't have the body or the, I think that's just not where I can be. I uh, I found a place in the emergency room because it is no matter where you are, it's the first place that someone who needs to go into the hospital would come. And I, I have this, I believe that one of my gifts as a practitioner of medicine is I can be that person to welcome someone into a system that can be scary or potentially harmful or isolating and hopefully be able to set them up for success in their treatment or their understanding of what's going on in their body. It's like the most community-facing uh, hospital-based community facing hospital based medicine. I don't know where I'm training yet. That's a whole other mystery, because it's not like applying for a job. I'm just i finishing four years of medical school training, and I've interviewed at a bunch of places, and it's not like they say, hey, we want to have you come here. It's all rank your top 10, and they rank you, and then mysteriously in March, they'll release the results.
0: Oh my (laughs) gosh, that's a whole way of... A different way of doing things than we would do. Yeah. Yes. And so I, I'm <laughs> sure you've had to you've had to learn a whole other way of thinking from a traditional Ongwe person.
1: Yeah, we're like, we're just like, give me the answer. Can we just have a, a chat and we'll figure this out? And so there's a lot of waiting and unknown. I think we find out March 17th, so just about a month. And so if you know me or you see me on the internet just cranking out belts right now, it's probably because <laughs> I'm processing all the, the butterflies that is about waiting.
0: I can say this is the first time since meeting you today. You know, you do have that gift of, even through a computer screen, of making someone feel really comfortable. And calm.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. It's um, my peers call it my big auntie energy. They're like, you feel like an auntie who just (laughs) wants to like give me a blanket and some soup and tell me it's gonna be okay. And I'm like, yeah, that's. But I also can get the slipper out if I need to. Someone's being unsafe. Get the slipper out and say, no, yeah. not here.
0: So it sounds like you've got your life pretty well figured out for a little while, at least. Is there anything else that you, I mean, you're a great storyteller. Do you find time in your life to, to tell stories?
1: Yeah, well, I'd say like part of my job as a physician is telling my patients stories in a way that's translatable for their care. So I get to do that, like regularly, I, I, I'm hopeful that as I move forward in my training, my free time, and I'll finally have a paycheck. So that'll make things easier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, you know, my intention is to continue always speaking when I can and sharing when I can. I'm always Picking up, picking up new perspectives and new ways of looking at something, which I I think that is one of the most beautiful things too about belts is, you know, whenever I, I present a belt or get to talk about these, I always ask people first, what do you see here? What do you see in this? And I love to hear people's answers because sometimes it's, wow, I never thought of looking at it that way but it still connects back to what I see and what I've heard and the way I'm feeling about it. And uh, it's really, it's a beautiful thing because, and I think one thing that we can do as communities who are coming back together is using belts to collect experiences and stories from each other, right? Mm -hmm. Because all of those lived experiences, all of the words and the hopes and the dreams and the, it all comes from our individual lives, but it comes together so nicely in the belts. And when we talk about, when we talk about two row, right? Like we can name moments in our daily lives where like we've lived up to that or not. Right. Cause I see Turo more than a thing that's just about us and the Dutch is it's about me and you, right? It's me saying to you, Hey, I'm not gonna, impose myself on your life. I'm going to respect you and honor and honor your what you're doing in life even if I don't understand and and agree with it and you're going to not impose on me, right? I'm not going to show up and say you you have to do this way because I'm that's what I say, right? That is like really changed my outlook on relationships because I feel like especially as we are all coming back together, there's a lot of this like it's this way or this way and if you don't fit in that way then it's you it's your problem and i'm like no i like why can't it be that way and this way and also like a little bit in between and and so it's like it's asking us to look at things with layers of interpretation right there's layers and layers of meaning and it's not like one layer is more important than the other. It's kind of how they come together, right? Obviously, if you were to hold up one dish, one spoon, and say, this is about astrophysics and space travel, I'd be like, wow, that's really (laughs) probably not (laughs) a layer of interpretation that's going to meld with the others. But it's not like I reject it, but I'm like, like not. But okay, I'll accept (laughs) that's where you're bringing it. And my hope is that as we reclaim practices as we reclaim stories and knowledge and and ways of being in this world as individuals and families and and people with a capital p that we use these wampum like use these use these things to to put our fires back into those material things and then also find ways to weave ourselves back together with just the right amount of tension, just the right amount of tension between ourselves and our families that says we're all, the more that we can do this, the more that we can combine our experiences and build those layers of meaning, the stronger we're all going to be in the long run.
0: And doing all of that, doing it all with a good mind.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I believe that um, a good mind is one that works right it's if you are if you're thinking and feeling and expressing those things that's a really good mind because i i don't love the or i don't resonate with goodness versus bad because i don't want anyone to feel like because they have felt anger or jealousy or have made a choice that i don't know harmed some part of themselves or harmed a relationship or made a choice that wasn't probably the safest, that then they are somehow like of a bad mind or a bad constitution. I don't believe that. And it's and it's certainly not the way I hope to bring people back together. And so I'm, yes, with a good mind, but a good mind being open, right? Mm-hmm. Being insightful and curious and above all else, like hopefully invested in the same goal, which is that we all could be that strong circle wampum again.
0: And accepting of one another.
1: Yeah, it's so important. I love people for all of the things that they bring and all of the whatever real thing that they bring, even if they're abrasive or or (laughs) difficult to get along with. I can respect someone who I really disagree with
0: and mm-hmm. I like almost
1: love them for the chance that we get to disagree because it's just a beautiful thing.
0: Yeah, for yeah. sure. I just feel like we had the best visit. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Likewise, yeah.
0: Did you have anything else you wanted to add before we close out our visit today?
1: Yeah, I think that just a, maybe an update on what I have in the works right now. I'll be finishing medical school. That's a big thing. But I think aside from my own sort of projects of producing historical belts and then maybe thinking about contemporary belts. I my goal in this building my own sort of library of belts that people in the community could use them. And I'm going to I have to figure out a way to make that sort of accessible, right? So if someone says we're doing a thing and we could really use some belts to help like with our words and our setting the intentions and experiences of the thing that we're doing. And I hope to have a way to like create like a lending process or if you need one dish because you're going to do a talk, like I can give you a one dish to, to be able to do that. And yeah, so more to come. I got to figure out, I think th- there's like logistics behind that. And I got someone who is really good with logistics. I got to find them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like, actually, because you have, like, real things to transport. These are real, real things, the belts. Yeah. But I think that's a great idea because belts are such teaching tools. And I love the way you use the language when you just are just chatting. Mm -hmm. Because I think language to our language is, it's so rich with such, Mm yeah, yeah that we should mm-hmm. be using our language and sharing it and with everyone, even if they're not speakers. Yeah. For sure. Okay. I just had such a really lovely visit with you. And I can't wait to... Let's visit again after you're in your career a little bit and see how it's going.
1: Yeah, I would love that. I would really enjoy that. Yeah.
0: Okay. On today's podcast, we've been chatting with Lutsanazeh. And um, he's getting ready to become a medical doctor very soon, and we're all excited for him. <laughs> You're going to be a great healer. Oh, now. wahi.
1: Uh... Oh, yeah.
0: We'll see you again on the next episode of Yohate Nikasuna. Ona. This has been the Yohate Negusana, the Road to Your Name podcast series. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our website www. Aboriginallegal.ca, and if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located at the top of the homepage of our website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Road to Your Name. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, the Road to Your Name podcast series.